The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, several weeks before we started preaching through the book of Romans here at church, I started reading through the, the book of Romans with my family around the dinner table just a couple times a week and fits and starts to be sure, just reading like half a chapter or, or so and then trying to talk about it. But more than once, uh, when, when this, ha- this happened more than once, um, but it, it certainly happened with this passage here that, that Brad just read. We'd get done reading, and, and we kind of turn to each other and look and go, what in the world did Paul just say, you know? And, and what was that? What's he, what's he trying to say here? And by the way, how many times can a man use the word circumcision in one paragraph? Uh, Ten is actually the answer there from, from Romans chapter 2. It's, 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 this is hard reading. This stuff is, this section of, of Paul's letter to the Romans is, is difficult to understand. I think this is probably one of the areas that maybe Peter had in mind when he said in 2 Peter 3.16 that some of the things that Paul wrote are difficult to understand. And yet, listen, this section of Romans, it is one of the most serious sections of Scripture in all the Bible. It, it'll search us if we'll let it. It'll search you, imposing on you, compelling you, even forcing you to ask yourself this question. What am I trusting in for salvation? What am I trusting in for salvation? That is a very, very important question. It's the question that Paul wants us to be asking here. See, the, the, the broader point that, that Paul is making from Romans 1.18 all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, in this large section at the beginning of the book of Romans that we might summarize as sort of like the bad news, right? But the, the point that he is making is that no one is righteous apart from Christ. No one. No one is in right standing before God apart from Christ. No one is good with God Apart from Christ, no one can face judgment and come out the other side apart from Christ. No one is righteous. We are all unrighteous apart from Christ, and therefore, the wrath of God is being revealed against us. In our passage this morning, just like last week, Paul has non-Christian Jews in his sights here. He wants them to know and understand and surrender to this truth, which was very hard for them. It's very hard for us. See, the Jews of Paul's day, they, they thought that they were immune to what Paul was talking about. They, they didn't think that it applied. They, they thought they were immune to divine judgment. Now, immunity, there's an illustration that we can all resonate with right now, isn't it? You know, with COVID-19 still going on, what do we all want? We want immunity. And we'll seek it in all kinds of different ways. Um, early on in the pandemic, you remember when it was surfaces? Don't touch anything. Wipe everything down. Remember, remember that? And, and listen, and then there was social distancing, and, and there still is. But you know, staying away from, from people, just isolating even. But then I remember one person who they were isolating very, very well, and one of their young children who really hadn't been around anybody got it. It, see, it's, it, it was in the air that we breathe. And masks, you know, we're talking about masks. And they're not bulletproof either, are they? They're not bulletproof. Uh, and they help slow the spread, which is good, but they, they don't make us immune. Uh, maybe you're like me and you, you got the COVID. You know, for me, it was about a year ago, right? And then you thought you're Superman for a little while until you read a story or two about someone somewhere in the world who got it again. 
And, and now you're learning the Greek alphabet, you know, and you're trying to figure out these different variants and all that sort of. Finally, there's a vaccine. And, and, and safety at last, we thought, immunity. But no sooner were vaccines landed in people's arms before we started hearing about what? Breakthrough cases. Right? We're all still dealing with it. And this is not a sermon about COVID-19. Phew, right? And please don't hear me say not to take any of those, those measures. But, but the, the point that I'm trying to illustrate is that none of them are locked tight. None of them guarantees immunity. The virus, we might say, shows no partiality. No one is immune. No, not one. That's what Paul is saying here in Romans 2. But, but not, about, not about a virus. No, he's actually concerned with something far more serious. Far more consequential. Eternally consequential. The wrath of God. No one is righteous, he says. No, not one. Jew or Greek. God shows no partiality. And, and the Jews of Paul's day, they had a problem with that. When they heard that, their defenses went up. And we're going to see those defenses this morning in this passage. Three defenses or arguments that the Jews would use to prove their immunity. And consequently, these are three defenses that still get used today. Maybe even by us. The three defenses we're going to look at this morning are, number one, knowledge. Secondly, moralistic behavior. And third, religion or religious activity. Knowledge, moralistic behavior, and religion. Now, what do we mean by knowledge? Well, in particular, for the Jews, it was knowledge of the law. They were, after all, people of the law. The Mosaic law given to Moses at Mount Sinai back in Exodus. They were God's people. With, with God's rules, right? God, God had revealed it to them, not to everyone else. He revealed it to his people, this people. And they knew it. They, they knew the law. But listen, just having the law doesn't make you immune to the wrath of God. That's what Paul says. It's why he says in Romans 2, verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Having the law doesn't make you immune. If you sin under the law, you will be judged by the law. He goes on, he elaborates in the next verse, verse 13, he says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Listen, we know this intuitively, don't we? For example, if you're driving down Sheridan Boulevard some morning to get here, right, and, and the speed limit's 35 out there, and uh, you know it's 35, you've seen the sign, you're a hearer of the law, right? But if instead you drive 55 on, on, on the way to get here and you get pulled over, it doesn't really matter if you're a hearer of the law, does it? <laughs> right? I mean, no police officer is going to say to you, well, as long as you know what the law is, you know, carry on, cheerio. You know, that, that's, no, it's, it's not hearers of the law that matter in the eyes of the police. It's doers of the law. Paul says it's the same thing with God. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Making it even more plain, you know, knowledge isn't enough. Even knowledge of God's law, it's not enough for the Jews. It's, it's not enough for anyone. 
Knowledge isn't enough, even for those who don't have the law, the, the, the Gentiles, for all who sin without the law, verse 12 again, will also perish. What does that mean? Well, Paul elaborates it more at the beginning of verse 14. He, he says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There's a, there's a little bit of a digression here in Paul's address to the non-Christian Jews, but he, he goes here to remind them that there's no partiality. And, and these are these are complex verses, some of the most complex in chapter 2. Scholars even disagree on the point, but Paul here, I believe, is referring to what we call natural law. This, this idea of, that God has put a, a sense of his law in every human being. That every human being has some sense of right and wrong. And, and notice it's not comprehensive, but we'd be speculating to try to surmise the extent here. But Paul, he, he doesn't say in verse 15 that God has written the law on their hearts. As if to say everyone everywhere knows the Ten Commandments. No, he says the work of the law is written on their hearts. And if you happen to be here or joining us online, you're, you're not a Christian, right? You, you need to dial in here because Paul is speaking to you. You're, you're the Gentile in this passage. You're, you're the Gentile of whom Paul says they know something of God's law. They don't know all of it. If they did, you know, they'd know the first commandment. They have no other gods before him. But Paul is saying that there are some Gentiles. He's saying that some Gentiles sometimes do what some of the law requires. They are, therefore, a law unto themselves. Think about it. You know plenty of non-Christians who aren't running about murdering people. You know plenty of non-Christians who aren't going about just sleeping with whoever it is that they desire. I think it was C.S. Lewis. I might be misremembering this, but I think it was Lewis who said, if I walk up to you and punch you in the nose, <laughs> all right, just out of the blue, come up, punch you in the nose. Everybody knows that's wrong. You don't have to be a Christian to know that's wrong. Why? Well, Paul would say because the work of the law is written on our hearts. Their conscience bears witness against them. Verse 15, their thoughts accusing or other times excusing behavior. It goes for how we treat parents. It goes for how we view murder, stealing, lying about your neighbor. We know it. Christian or not, there's an internal sense of right and wrong to, to some extent. But that knowledge... It doesn't save anybody. To the contrary, all who have sinned without the actual law, the Mosaic law, they, they transgress the work of the law that is written on their hearts, and therefore they too will perish. Knowledge cannot save us. It will not save us. And you might sit here and listen to that and think, duh, you know. But we're tempted to believe it's true too. Even as Christians, we're tempted to believe this is true. And one of the reasons why we're tempted to believe it is because knowledge is good. It's good. Uh, know, knowing the truth, that's a good thing. You know, knowing the Bible and what God instructs and what he commands and what he forbids, that's good. But what we do with knowledge and how we approach our knowledge of the truth can reveal that we too, like the Jews of Paul's day, are trusting in knowledge to save us. 
Two ways I see this play out. The first is to have actually no real interest in the truth. I've got enough knowledge, you think. I'm trusting in Jesus, you say. And so you don't read the Bible. You don't pursue knowledge. You're, you're, you're relying on your own knowledge, what you already have. You might even think, what I don't know can't hurt me. But it will. If you call yourself a Christian but have no interest in pursuing a deeper understanding of God and his word, it will. I mean, go back to Sheridan Boulevard, you know. Uh, a policeman, he pulls you over out there for going 55, and you say, I never knew that the limit was 35. I always thought it was 55. What's that officer going to say to you? <laughs> you are falsely trusting in your own knowledge. That's what he's going to say to you. He, 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 and write you a ticket, you know. Another way you may manifest no interest in the truth is to mistrust the Bible. You might, in your pride, place yourself above the Scripture rather than under the Scripture. And you'll make all kinds of arguments to get, out, get yourself out from under the Scripture. Again, you're trusting in your knowledge. The second way that I see this play out in our day is with those who only have an intellectual interest in the truth. Only intellectual. Strictly intellectual. This is the person who, who loves to argue over theology as long as it stays purely in the realms of ideas. Intellectual theology, not practical theology, Right? This is the person who always has a podcast for you to listen to, always has a book for you to read, right? This is the person who is supremely concerned with sound doctrine, and sound doctrine, of course, is very important. But this is the person who thinks that they've got it all right, airtight, others have it wrong, and therefore they're finding a sense of righteousness in their doctrine. You know anyone like this? Everything is black or white. There's no room for gray. There's no room for questions. There's no room for being in process. And I'm not talking about the major things, core convictions over what it means to be an actual Christian. We need to know and understand and stand firm on all of that. I'm talking about the more tertiary issues, the secondary issues, like mode of baptism, or your end-time theology, or... You know, the, the, the translation of the Bible that you really got to use or, um, you know, all kinds of different things. Christians' in, in involvement in politics, whatever it is. And very often, churches that tend in this direction become extremely legalistic. Not just over the doctrine, but over everything else. Including behavior. Which leads into the second defense that the Jews of Paul's day would make to prove their immunity. Their, their moralistic behavior. Again, these two, very often, they, they go together, almost a two-pronged defense, trusting in my knowledge, trusting in my behavior. And you can see that link here in the text. In verse 13, again, Paul says, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous, but the doers. As if he knows their next objection, which he would have. Remember, Paul's been preaching this gospel for over 20 years. He, he knows their next objection is to say, listen, Paul, we're not just hearers of the law. We're doers too. And so he addresses it in verse 17. What's he say? He, he says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, there, there's the close connection. Relying on the law is relying on knowledge like we just addressed. So they're trusting in their knowledge all while boasting in God. So if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, 
And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in the darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. This is quite the list. It's it's a list chuck full of even moral decency, we might say. Knowing the law, bragging about God, approving what is excellent, celebrating, we might say, the work of God. Guiding the blind, helping others, pointing them to God in in their darkness even, appearing ever so loving, ever so empathetic, ever so compassionate, instructing others who you might just view as foolish, a foolish, a hint perhaps of moralistic pride that's in here, teaching kids, appearing to embody the truth in so many ways, looking the part, we might say, but Paul sees through it. He sees right through it and he calls it out beginning in verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. He calls out their hypocrisy, doesn't he? he? He says, you're priding yourself in all the good that you do. Others may even celebrate you and laud you, but it isn't enough. And the reason it isn't enough is because you're looking to your moralistic behavior to justify you. But you can never earn your way in. You might be able to teach never to steal, but in your heart, do you covet Does jealousy run rampant? You might teach, never commit adultery, but in your heart, do you lust? You might, you who abhor idols, teaching against idolatry, probably in the literal sense, which is in mind there, statues and false gods and literal pagan temples, but have you perhaps robbed those temples of the same idol that is under the surface of that statue, allowing it to take the place of God in your own heart? You're boasting in the law, Paul says. Your your knowledge and do-goodery, your moralistic behavioralism. But all the while also, dishonoring God. Now listen, morality isn't bad. It's good. good. None of the things on this list are are bad in and of themselves. They're, They're good. We ought to boast on God and approve what is excellent and teach others and so on. But it becomes bad when we start to look to our behavior, our moralistic behavior for salvation. And we turn morality into moralism. And we look to our works. You know, the Midwest is chock full of people like this. And such are some of us, <laughs> or were. None of us want to self-identify with that, though. I once visited an old man in the hospital who was near his death, and I, I asked him if he was afraid at all, if he was ready to meet Jesus. And he looked at me and he said, Don't worry about me, Todd. I'm fine. I've never killed anyone. I've never stolen anything. I've gone to church most of my life. I'm good. Friends, that is precisely the wrong answer, and it ought to leave you terrified to stand before God. And although most of us might not be so blatant, there's never any humility in the hypocrite, is there? You who teach others, you who rely on God's word, do you teach yourself? Do you apply the truth to yourself? I mean, we've got to let this search us this morning. 
Oh, no, you do lots of good. You look the part. You take care of the poor. You serve the underprivileged. Mentor others. Volunteer here. Volunteer there. But as you read the Bible each day, do you apply the truth to yourself? Is the word of God constantly unveiling your need? Or are you self-satisfying yourself with your moralistic behavior? You might even have the scriptures down. You got all the knowledge. You got the moralistic behavior to go with it, but are dead inside. Dead orthodoxy, we might call it. You know all the right stuff. You do all the right stuff, but you're dead inside. And therefore, verse 24, the name of God is actually blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's a very serious charge. But listen, deadness of faith under the guise of faith, yields to questioning the faith by those outside the faith. See, the person who uses their moralistic behavior as their defense, if, if they're looking to that, trusting to that, and yet dead on the inside, eventually it shows forth. Sometimes it shows forth in massive shows of sin. Sometimes in really small shows of sin that just causes somebody to cock their head to the side and say, you call yourself a Christian? When that happens, those outside the faith look to those who are allegedly inside the faith and say, I want nothing to do with your faith. I want nothing to do with your God. In fact, I, I kind of think your God's a joke. I wonder if any of us who call ourselves Christians are causing anyone around us to blaspheme God. Boasting of being God's people without real change, inward change, the humility of repentance. Listen, all of your knowledge, all of your do-goodery, it's not enough. It's, it's not a sufficient defense. Nor is, number three, your religious activity. All this talk here about circumcision in the last paragraph, all ten instances of it there, that's what this is about. See, circumcision was the sign of the old covenant. It was applied to Jewish men indicating that they were God's covenant people, that they belonged to him. It was a mark of their religion. But just like with moralism, the outward sign isn't what matters the most, is it? Look at verse 25. What's he say? He says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. This is Paul saying that their circumcision did not make them what their disobedience proved that they were not. Verse 26. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Now this, I think, is hypothetical. Paul says if a man who is uncircumcised were to perfectly keep the law. If. He's not saying it's possible. He's saying if that were possible. The fact that he was circumcised or uncircumcised wouldn't matter, would it? Because what God, what God desires, what he's addressing here is, hey, if God desires that people perfectly keep the law, that he wants holy people, and so if a man is holy, it doesn't matter if he's circumcised or not. And remember, that this isn't a passage 
about how Gentiles can be counted righteous before God. Paul is not saying this is possible, the uncircumcised keeping the law. It's a passage about how the Jews put up their defenses. He's deconstructing their defenses. He's saying that this is one way a Gentile can get in. I'm sorry, he's not saying this is a way that a Gentile can get in. He's saying circumcision alone has never kept anyone from the wrath of God, including the Jews. Why? Verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. No is circumcision, nor is circumcision outward and physical. It's not the outward that matters, Paul keeps saying. It's the inner. A a, a true Jew, the, the real thing, the person who really belongs to God, is not a Jew merely in an outward way, but inwardly. Not just having the outward mark of the covenant, but rather a circumcision of the heart. Something that is only accomplished by the Holy Spirit. It's not someone who just looks the part. It's not someone who's just going through the outward religious motions in Lincoln, Nebraska. Paul is attacking here, I hope you see, their defense. Their their complacent assumption that their culturally religious identity somehow made them immune to the wrath of God. Cultural Christians, beware. I had a friend in college before I was a believer before I was a believer, we lived quite the unrighteous life together. And later after college, we reconnected. I was a believer by then. He wasn't. And he was engaged. And he's getting ready to get married in the Catholic church. And he, and he told me, he's like, he said he was afraid to meet with the priest. And the reason that he was afraid to meet with the priest, because he, he wasn't sure the priest would agree to marry him. He hadn't been involved in church for over 10 years. In fact, he wasn't really sure that he believed in God. But, of course, we live in the Midwest, so he wants to be married in a church. <laughs> Don't believe in God, but we've got to get married in church. And so he goes and he meets with this priest, and he actually lays it all out there for him. He's honest. Good Midwestern honesty. He's honest, and he, he says, you know, hey, priest, I haven't been to church in like 10 years. And the, the priest responds, well, were you baptized? And he's, well, yeah, my, I was born, my parents are Catholic. I was baptized as an infant in the Catholic church. And the priest responded, well, then you're a Christian. Of course I'll marry you. It's religion. It's religion. As long as you've done X, Y, Z, as long as you've got the outward thing down, you're immune, religion says. It was the Jews' defense back then. It's the Catholic defense for my friend wanting to get married. It's much sneakier than that, too. Tim Keller, in his little commentary on on Romans, he suggests inserting some different words in 25 through 27 here in the past. We'll be real careful when we do this. It's just to serve a point, right? But he he suggests inserting some different words into chapter 2, verses 25 through 27, and trying this passage on for ourselves. And so inserting these words, he, he writes, so what if you've been baptized? So what if you're a church member? This only counts for anything if there has been a real change in your life. If your heart has been truly affected. Don't you know that you're not a Christian if you're only one externally? That real Christianity is not about having confidence in external things. No, a Christian is someone who is a Christian inside. What matters is inner baptism, a heart membership of God's people. And this is a supernatural work. Not a human one. But we need to hear this. 
But we need to hear this and, and steep ourselves in it, lest we too put up our religious activity as a defense or begin to rely on it as a defense, somehow duping ourselves into thinking that our religion, all the churchy stuff we do, is somehow what makes us immune to the wrath of God. Listen, you can show up here every Sunday, 52 a week, 54, we're throwing Christmas and Easter, you know? You, you can show up to your gospel community every single week. You can serve in kids' ministry. You can sing up here in front of all of us. You can check the boxes on your daily Bible reading plan. You can put a check in the give box every time that you're here and not be a Christian on the inside. You can do all these very religious-looking things and not have it make an ounce of internal difference and therefore not an ounce of eternal difference. And so ask yourself again, what am I trusting in for salvation? Listen, if you can answer that question, you've got it wrong. If you can answer that question, you don't have salvation. See, it's not a what that we're to trust in for salvation. It's a who. That's Paul's point. Knowledge won't save you. All the knowledge in the world, it won't save you. Your theology won't save you. Picking apart someone else's will not save you. All those books you're reading, all the information that you're storing up, it won't save you. Your Bible study will not save you. Listening to Christian podcasts will never save you. Knowing the Bible frontwards and backwards, it won't save you. It won't make you immune. Moralistic behavior won't save you either. All your good deeds, all your do-goodery, all your church attendance, it, it won't save you. It, it, your, all your involvements, they won't save involvement in social justice will never save you. Protesting and marching will never, it'll never save you. Tweeting, Facebooking, Instagramming, all the right stuff, slogans and sayings. It won't save you. All of your empathy and compassion towards others. It won't save you. All of your serving the underprivileged, all of your giving to good causes, all of your not murdering, not stealing, none of it will save you. It won't make you immune. Religion won't save you either. Your baptism will not save you. Participating in the Lord's Supper will not save you. Showing up here and going through all the motions, joining a gospel community, joining the church, serving, giving, leading, going into the ministry, none of it will save you. Your nationality won't save you. Your political party won't save you. Your politicians won't save you. Your ethnicity won't save you. Even Christianity won't save you. The church will not save you. Two Pillars Church will not save you. No pastor here is going to save you. No one else in this room is going to save you. No celebrity pastor online is going to save you either. The level of your faith won't save you. Your lack of doubt won't save you. Your spiritual confidence won't save you. Your lack of shame or guilt that you're longing to feel and searching after, that won't save you. Putting away all sin in your life will not save you. Getting past all the hurts in your life will not save you. Only Jesus will save you. Jesus and Jesus alone. 
Salvation does not come through a what. It comes through a who. Christ alone for salvation. That's Paul's point. And look back to verse 16. Look what Paul says there in verse 16. He says, there's coming a day, friends. There's coming a day. That day. And the New Testament has a lot to say about that day. The last day. When the wrath of God is revealed in a full and final way. God will judge. Do you see it there? He will judge. He'll judge the secrets of men. Everything you look to for salvation will be exposed, whether you are conscious of it or not. All of your hypocrisy, all of the stuff that you've been hiding in your life, oh, it's all going to be exposed. On that day, God will judge, listen to this though, <laughs> according to the gospel. You see that in there? What's the gospel? <laughs> the power of God for salvation. For everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. In it, Paul says, remember chapter 1, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The only sure vaccine there is against the pandemic virus of the wrath of God. See, the only way that we become immune to the wrath of God is through the righteousness of Jesus. No other defenses. Looking to nothing else. No one else but him. Christ alone for salvation. Christ alone for righteousness. On that day, according to the gospel, God will judge the secrets of men. Don't miss the last part. By Christ Jesus. <laughs> Friends, our judge is our savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And when you trust in him, you don't have to trust in anything else. You don't have to trust in your knowledge, which means you're free to study the pants off the Bible and not grow proud in it. You're free to go deep in theology and dive hard now into Scripture and not look to your knowledge to save you. You're free to live a moral life and do good. In fact, you're commanded to. But only, only once you're truly trusting in Christ alone for salvation are you free to obey without trying to obey to earn your righteousness. Which means you can do good and not boast in it. You don't need to boast in it anymore because you boast in Christ. You're free to embrace the rhythms of, of, of a life of religion, the comforts, even the steadfastness and the external rhythms that tend your internal soul without ever mistaking your motions for salvation. You're free to worship freely, to serve your church freely, to give freely, to lead freely, to love your church family freely because you're not looking around here for anyone to save you but Jesus. And you know he has. You know he has. And when you trust in Christ alone for salvation, when you believe that he and he alone makes you securely immune to the wrath of God, you can rest. Man, you're safe in him. You are secure in him. 
forgiven in him, cleansed in him, counted righteous in him before God our Father in heaven. And you're now free and empowered by his spirit to grow in knowledge, to grow in obedience, in morality, and worship, and seeing yourself as a vital part of his church. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would search us. Search us, O oh God, and know our heart. Try us and, and know our thoughts. Lord, would you see if there be any grievous way in us, any defenses that we're putting up, anything that we are trusting in besides the righteousness of Christ, lead us in your way everlasting. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.